readers, and welcome to the first episode of Lost the Plot. My name is Ang Harrod, and I'm going to be hosting this monthly podcast on everything to do with books. Today's theme is rebellion, and I've got some wild things to talk about later on in the show. Before we get on to book rebellions, the first segment of the podcast is book news, and right at the top of the agenda for today's show is that I got to meet Jasper Ford. He's the best-selling author of the genre-bending Thursday Next series, of which The Air Affair is probably his most famous book. Jasper Ford came to the Australian National University Canberra to give a talk on the 1st of March, and I almost missed out on seeing him. People might not think it, and this time I forgot it, but Canberra actually has a really active community, and tickets to events like these almost always sell out. Jasper Ford's event was free, but you had to pre-register tickets to attend. I had always intended on going, but I hadn't gotten myself organized until about a week beforehand. So when I went to book my ticket, I was dismayed to see that the allocation had been exhausted. In desperation, I sent a sad little email to the organizers asking them to let me know if any more tickets became available, and I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to miss out. However, just days before the event, I got an email back from the organizers saying they'd upgraded the venue and more tickets were available. I wasn't about to let this opportunity slide, and I reserved my ticket straight away. The event included book signings by Jasper Ford himself, so naturally I had to bring a copy of one of his books along with me and get it signed. The trouble was, I just moved house, and all of my books were currently taking up floor space in the two bedrooms I don't actually sleep in, not to mention the boxes that were occupying the living room. So the morning of the event, I had been in a frenzy rummaging through my horizontal library, trying to find my copy of The Air Affair. So, it wasn't until I was on my way to work that I had a chance to flick through the pages when all of a sudden I stopped in horror. Printed in blue pen on the title page were the incriminating words, Kate, 2004. I'd bought this book secondhand because the original edition is no longer in print and I really, really liked the design with the dodo on front. Apparently Kate did not. I spent my lunch break furiously and somewhat futilely trying to erase the letters, but mostly just wore through the paper. There was nothing I could do but hope he didn't notice. The talk itself was incredible. Jasper Ford is, at heart, a comedian, and it was really interesting listening to him talk about the creative process behind his books. He talked about how he likes to set himself narrative dares, crazy ideas that he then has to somehow construct a story around. At one point he said, It's very difficult to write a story about a man turning into a banana and not have it be stupid. I live blog the talk on the Tumblr and Facebook page for my book blog, Tinted Edges, so you can check out some of the other hilarious things he said there too. The highlight for me, though, was definitely the book signing afterwards. A friend of mine who was going to come along ended up being unwell, so as a surprise, I bought her a copy of The Air Affair and asked Jasper Ford to sign up for her. In addition to being a very funny person, with a whole collection of special Goliath Corporation stamps that he told me that I wasn't even allowed to look at, let alone touch, he was incredibly sweet, and he left a personal message for my friend, hoping that she gets well soon. Luckily, he also didn't notice that my copy was secondhand. Next in book news is J.K. Rowling's Pottermore controversy. For those of you who aren't diehard Harry Potter fans, a trilogy of films is coming out, the first of which is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Set in the 1920s in New York, and based on the life and times of Newt Scamander, author of Harry Potter's own textbook, also called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the film has generated a lot of excitement, especially because J.K. Rowling herself is the screenwriter. A lot of this hype has come from J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter website called Pottermore. For the past few months, 
Pottermore has been releasing tidbits of information about magical history and geography all over the world. It's been announced that there are 11 wizarding schools worldwide, and some details have been released about a new Japanese school, an African school, more about that in a second, a Brazilian school, and a North American school called Ilvermorny. At the start of March, to give some context, and to generate more hype of course, about Fantastic Beasts, Pottermore released four pieces of writing about American wizarding history, ranging from the 14th century to the 1920s. It was the first piece of writing that attracted backlash, particularly on Twitter. The 14th century to 17th century entry focused entirely on the Native American magical community, and J.K. Rowling found herself at the center of a small media storm being accused of insensitivity and cultural appropriation. Back in February, J.K. Rowling had come under fire for the writing about her African school, Wagadu. Readers complained that she was treating Africa as a country, rather than recognizing that it is in fact a huge and incredibly diverse continent, thus perpetuating stereotypes about African people. J.K. Rowling responded very positively to these criticisms, and subsequently updated the post on Pottermore to confirm that while there were smaller schools in other countries in Africa, Wagadu, located in Uganda, was the most prestigious. J.K. Rowling's piece on Native American wizards, and her subsequent response to the backlash, was very different. First of all, I would say that the criticisms about J.K. Rowling's treatment of Native American magic have even more merit again than those about her African school. One of the biggest issues taken with her piece was that she homogenized Native American culture. She refers to the Native American community as though it is just one group of people, instead of recognizing that the land now called the United States of America, let alone the entire North American continent, was, and still is, home to incredibly diverse First Nations peoples. In fact, in 2015, there were 567 Native American tribes recognized in the USA. 567. How can you cover, even fictionally, the history and culture of 567 individual tribal groups, each with their own language and traditions, in only 400 words? You can't. You're crazy if you think you can. That's not even one word per group. So lumping all of these distinct groups together in one amorphous blob is at best a mistake and at worst extremely disrespectful. Another big issue is her assertion that skinwalkers, a type of witch in Navajo culture who can transform into an animal, are in fact animagi. Rowling ascribes this tradition to Native American culture generally, instead of recognizing that it is a cultural element specific to the Navajo people. It is also problematic because it essentially fictionalizes an aspect of a culture that is alive in practice today. It reads as though J.K. Rowling googled Native American culture, found something that sounded similar to an element of her wizarding world, and shoehorned it in. Finally, she talks about how Native American wizards don't use wands because they are a European invention. Apart from the fact that this is of itself rather condescending, it's also not strictly correct. Wand-like tools have been and are used by some Native American cultures in rituals such as smudging and weather prediction. So, understandably, a number of Native American writers and scholars took to Twitter and openly criticized J.K. Rowling for cultural appropriation. That is, using something from another group's culture for her own gain without due and proper consultation and credit. The gain, of course, being her film's promotion. Now, the thing that I've seen people write most in her defense is that it is fiction. Fantasy, even, so it shouldn't matter where the writer gets inspiration from and what she writes. 
It's meant to be entertainment, so it doesn't need to be accurate or sensitive. I don't buy that. First of all, I don't buy it because J.K. Rowling didn't buy it when people pulled her up on the African Wizarding School. She tweeted a public response and then amended the Pottermore entry. Simple as that. Secondly, she's J.K. Rowling. She has all the money and all the contacts that it wouldn't have been hard for her to consult with somebody to make sure that she approached this with at least an appearance of sensitivity. Writing about cultures other than your own requires a lot of knowledge and consultation, and a lot of delicacy. J.K. Rowling is used to writing about something she's intimately familiar with, British history and culture, and she nails it when she writes about that. You can see that whenever you read any Harry Potter book. However, to expect to be as well across the nuances and intricacies of First Nations peoples in the Americas is naive, and I would even go as far as to say even a bit lazy. Thirdly, we hold actors and sports stars and even politicians accountable for what they do and say. Well, mostly. And I don't think writers should be any different. J.K. Rowling is a hugely influ influential writer who has millions of followers online, so I think she has a degree of responsibility for what she writes. My biggest question is why, when the transgression was much more blatant and the fallout much bigger than with the African Wizarding School, has J.K. Rowling stayed silent this whole time? She's made no response, directly or indirectly, and the Pottermore page has remained as it was. Anyway, the small media frenzy has died down, and the discussion has mostly evaporated. I'll be interested to see what happens when Fantastic Beasts comes out and whether the issues will raise their head again. I'll let you know, because I will be doing everything in my power to be at that film's premiere. There are two books being released in the next couple of months that I am really, really excited about. The first is Joanne Harris's novel Different Class, a kind of sequel to her brilliantly twisted novel Gentlemen and Players, and also set in the same town as her disturbing novel Blue-Eyed Boy. Each of these three books, while related, is intended to be a standalone novel which can be read in any order. Different Class comes out on the 21st of April and takes place in the fictional St. Oswald's Grammar School for Boys. Joanne Harris is probably best known for her gorgeous French novel Chocolat, and I actually got to interview her for an article in the first edition of Lost Magazine, which is still available to buy either in hard copy or PDF via the website. The second book I'm thrilled about is Annie Prue's latest book, Barkskins. Annie Prue wrote the fabulous novel Shipping News and the very well-known short story Brokeback Mountain. Even though Barkskins isn't out until June, I am seriously, seriously excited for it to come out. So, now onto the themed segment, Rebellion. Last year, one of the coolest things I got to write about was naked girls reading. Yep, you heard me right. Girls, naked, who are reading. Naked girls, reading. This has been a performance phenomenon that evolved from the burlesque scene, and chapters have cropped up all over the world. I accidentally got myself a bit of a reputation as somebody who is interested in nudity after I went on a naked guided tour of the National Gallery of Australia, and so I scored myself an invite to go see Naked Girls Reading in Canberra. If ever there was a way to rebel when it comes to books, reading them while you're naked in front of an audience is definitely an original one. The three ladies were very glamorous, and it actually turned out to be far more artistic than it was sexual. So if you want to hear more about this unique experience, you can check out my article on www.lostonline.com.au. Just search for Naked Girls Reading. In keeping with the book rebellion theme, 
I actually decided to take a little field trip to the National Archives of Australia in Canberra, where they have a fantastic permanent exhibition called Band. The display is in the National Archives of Australia cafe, but unfortunately I could only get there on the weekend and the cafe itself was closed. So I did feel a little bit naughty poking around reading the walls when no one was in there, but it was absolutely fascinating. It's not exactly common knowledge, but once upon a time, between the 1920s and the 1970s, Australia had some of the most strict censorship laws in the world. The Commonwealth Customs Department actually kept a reference library of around 15,000 books that had been banned, and this collection is now held by the National Archives of Australia. The banned display was really cleverly done. There are some fabulous quotes and examples of banned books in huge print all over the walls. The cafe tables were decorated with collages of banned book covers, and there were even these fantastic red plastic folders of particular book titles that you could open and then read through the laminated copies of correspondence between parties about the censorship of particular books. And then, once you headed back towards the front of the archives, there's another small display with actual copies of banned books from the Times and information about what it was that made them so naughty. So I had a great time sticky-beaking around this exhibition, and if you're ever in Canberra and have a bit of spare time, I highly recommend it. And I'll attach a couple of photos that I took sneakily on my camera so you can have a bit of a look. So I'll just do a bit of an overview of some of the books that I got to read over March. March actually felt a bit like a slow reading month for me. Even though I managed to squeeze about seven books in there by the end, I felt like I had to struggle through a few of them. Surprisingly, although Margaret Atwood is one of my favourite all-time authors, I found The Rubber Bride a bit of a hard slog, and it was a book club book, and so I really like I was obliged to finish it, but I really struggled with that one. Another struggle was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's been a while since I'd read a classic, and the edition I have this book is so cool. It's, it's like a pulp fiction front cover, and it's got really brightly coloured pages, and it's awesome. But the novel itself just seemed to drag on it on and the titular character was so uninspiring that I just could not keep interested. Though some highlights of the month were Tim Robbins's novel Even Cowgirls Get Blues. I have never read anything like this. It was such a fun and progressive book, especially considering it was written in the 1970s. And if the idea of a girl who has unnaturally large thumbs and who becomes America's best hitchhiker before she joins a dude ranch run completely by women is in any way appealing to you, you should give this a crack. It is an absolute rollicking read. I also really enjoyed John Ronson's nonfiction work, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It is so incredibly relevant right now, and he does a great job looking into the power that social media and shame have over us. My only complaint was that I wanted him to go deeper into this issue and find out more about how he can solve, counter, or even just survive the lynch mob that is often the internet. Finally, for a month, the BBC website had available for free streaming online the radio play adaptation of Neil Gaiman's fantastic London fantasy, Neverwhere. Unfortunately, I didn't quite manage to catch all six episodes, but the ones I did catch were acted out brilliantly. With voices of big names such as Natalie Dormer and Benedict Cumberbatch, it could only be incredible. Unfortunately, it's not available on demand anymore, but you can still buy it online, and if you have a long car trip coming up, I would highly recommend it. So we're just about at the end of the show for today, but I have one more thing I'd like to talk about. My family has a small not-for-profit called Books for the World, and we run projects to help get books to those who need them. 
At the moment, we're running a campaign for our friends at Sekolah Gunung Merapi, which means Mount Merapi School in Indonesian, who've opened a small school in a town called Kinerejo in central Java, Indonesia. Kinerejo was devastated by volcanic eruptions in 2010, and Sekolah Gunung Merapi is helping the people in this village rebuild and retrain. The campaign itself is to raise funds so they can buy school textbooks, build a public library, and get some much-needed repairs for their school building. You can check out the campaign in the links below. If you can't donate but you still want to help, please share the link around. We're already at the halfway mark and every little bit helps. So that's it for the first episode of Lost the Plot. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode in May.